This morning, the scripture is from Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. It's the story of the prodigal son, but I'm not going to be reading it this morning. It's going to be rolled into my sermon. So please indulge me. Let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, I met a gentleman named Homer, and he talked to me about his father and then his younger brother named Junior. And when I was talking to him, he was telling me that he had some problems at home. He lived on a a vast farm, an estate almost, where they had fields and they had animals, and this supported their entire family. And he was telling me that his dad was getting older and Homer has always run the land and the property and his younger brother, Junior, really never liked working on the farm. And his dad loves Junior. From the moment that Junior's been born, Junior has been the apple of his dad's eye. And from the moment that Junior could talk, Junior's been complaining about living on the farm. He's never liked living there. But his dad has never seen a thing wrong with that. And Homer told me that he's always been in charge of the farm, always been in charge of taking care of everything, always been his dad's right-hand man. And Junior has always done as little as humanly possible around working. And he's always complained that he wants to get off that farm as soon as possible. As soon as he gets his inheritance, he's out of there. Now, Homer told me the way things are is that when his dad does eventually pass on, the inheritance goes where Homer gets two-thirds of everything on the land, and then his brother, Junior, will get one-third. And Junior's like, that's fine with me. As soon as he gets his third, he's gone. They'll never see him on that farm again. The problem is, Homer said, Junior's just getting more and more obnoxious about he wants an inheritance, he wants off the land, he wants off the land, and Homer is just starting to lose his temper over this. And then one day, Homer came to me, and he's like, oh, things are finally going to get good, because his brother Junior came to Homer, and he said, I'm going to Dad, and I am telling him I want my inheritance, I want to go. And Homer told me, finally, Dad's going to see what a punk Junior really is. So he's like, I can't wait till this absolutely happens. And so Homer left in a pretty good mood. Next time I see Homer, he is angry. Because I guess Junior went in and he talked to his dad and he told him flat out, I want my inheritance. I want it now. I don't want to wait till you're actually dead. I want it now. I want to be gone. And when his dad was really hurt and said, but I'm still alive. What are you trying to do? Junior said, I want it. It's due me. I want it. And Homer said, instead of his father telling him, get out of here, His father came to Homer and told Homer, liquidate everything that we can liquidate so that your brother can get what would be due him if I actually died. And Homer said, that's great for Junior, but it's putting him in a horrible position because he's taking one-third of the assets of the farm. 
So great, Junior gets all of this in liquid cash, and now the farm has to work on only two-thirds of its assets. So now if there's a crisis in the farm, Homer is like, I don't know what's going to happen if all of a sudden there's a drought or the animals get sick or something happens. One-third of our wealth is gone because Junior decides he wants it. So Homer, when he was meeting with me, said he's got to leave there and he's got to go take care of this for his father so that Junior can walk away with one-third of all of their wealth so that he can leave the family farm and leave them in horrible financial straits and then just disappear. Next time I saw Homer, things weren't any better. He was telling me that Taking that one-third of that money off really hurt. And not only part of that, but he said his dad is devastated. His dad told everybody that Junior is now dead. And he's, cre he's treating it as if he lost a son. But worse than that, he tells everybody that Junior is dead. But then he sits at the road and waits for Junior to come home. And he's like, Homer told me that he has to take care of everything now. He is responsible for all the work on the farm. He is responsible for taking care of all decisions because his dad is just distraught. And he says that Junior's dead. He tells everybody that comes to visit that Junior is dead. But nobody believes him because everybody that comes to visit is coming to tell us stories about what Junior is doing in the city. Homer says that everybody comes and says, we hate to tell you about this, and then they tell us about it. They tell us how Junior is spending all of our money. They tell us about how Junior is drinking up everything. They tell us how Junior's never sober. They tell us about how all the women Junior is hanging out with, none of which we want to know about. They tell us all of these hurtful things. But then my dad, Homer said, the dad says, Junior's dead. And he continues to watch the road. So when we parted, Homer was just distraught. He felt like he had lost a brother who's doing horrible things and just destroying their family name and everything possible. He's worried about the farm being destroyed because so much of the wealth was taken away. And he's really worried about his dad's mental health and physical health. And that's how we left. Then I saw Homer a while later. And Homer looked like he was losing his mind. He was so angry. He was like frothing at the mouth. And I'm like, Homer, oh my God, what happened? And he said, Junior returned. And I went, that's not good. And he goes, you would not believe what happened after Junior left and what he did to us. He starts walking down the road. The servants told me he started walking down the road. And my father literally lifted up his robes and ran to meet him. And instead of yelling, what did you do to us? He hugged him. And he welcomed him back and he put a new robe on him and he put a ring on him. And then 
he had a party for them and said, you were dead and now you're alive. And they killed a fatted calf. One of the few left after we had to sell everything for him. And I said, but Homer, your dad was really happy. Isn't that a good thing? And Homer's like, my dad's happy, yeah. But I'm not. We had to get rid of so much livestock to get the money that he took and lost. And they had a party to celebrate that he was home after he lost a third of our wealth. And they invited people over to celebrate that he who, who sullied our name is now back. And I said, oh, but how's your dad? And Homer's like thrilled that he's back. After everything he did, he's so happy that Junior is back, but I'm not. And I said, oh, Homer, that's just, that's horrible. So how are things between your dad and you? And he said, that is the worst part. My dad is actually mad at me. My dad came and saw me and actually chided me and said, why aren't you happy that your brother's back? And so I told him, I'm like, he lost all of our money and he disgraced our family. And how can you welcome him back? And my dad told me because he was dead and now he's alive again. Why aren't you happy? And I said, you never gave me a party. You never acknowledged that, that I was here the whole time. You never were thrilled that I was working with you. And so my dad said, but I always loved you. I couldn't believe that was the only answer I got. I said, so how are things between you and your dad? And Homer went, not great. I'm hoping next time I see Homer, things are better. But that's all I got. That's pretty much the parable that Christ told. He was trying to tell people that when God loves you, God loves you. Grace is grace. Grace is not something we can work for. We can't earn it. We can't merit it. We never deserve it. We call it unearned, unmerited, undeserved. You can't work for it like the other brother wants to do. Look, I worked all these days. I never did it. We can't deserve it. We can't say I got all A's on my report card. I deserve it. We can't merit it. We can't ever do anything good enough where we, we merit God's grace. We have it because God is God and God loves us. So God loves us because we're the older brother and we're there and we go to church every Sunday and we do our job. And God loves us because we're the younger brother and we screw up big time and we repent and we come home and God loves us. And God loves us the same if we're good and God loves us the same if we're bad and we repent. And God loves us because God is God and God loves us and that's our grace. And that's hard when we're the older brother instead of the younger brother. And I know that because I've kind of lived it as the older brother. Many of you know my story with my daughter, Jamie. Many of you know that Jamie was a troubled youth. 
and that Jamie attempted suicide when she was 15 and came a hair's breadth to completing the act. She was in intensive care for multiple days. And when she was in intensive care, because of all the medications that she took trying to kill herself, um, she was literally out of her mind, and she was loopy. And while she was loopy, she was happy. So as we're sitting next to her, and the doctors keep coming in, and they're scanning her and giving her all kinds of medications, getting the drugs that are slowly killing her out of her system, she's giggling and smiling and saying all these cutesy-wootsy things to us. And I'm thinking, I hate you. I am so angry at you. You tried killing my child. You almost succeeded in killing my child. And I love you because you are my child. It was horrifying every time. Minute after minute, those thoughts kept going in my head. I hate you because you tried killing my child. I love you because you are my child. And she kept acting these loopy ways where she would look at me and she would say cutesy-wootsy things. And I would think, I hate you so much because you tried killing my child. And I love you so much because you are my child. And it would keep going through these loops. Then after about three days... They got enough of the toxins out of her system where she would actually make sense. And they brought in the psychologist, and the psychologist gave her a very leading question, and it was, you didn't really want to die, did you? And she said, yes. The only mistake I made was living. I don't want to be alive. And I thought, I'll take care of that for you right now. I was so angry at her that a friend of mine that was also in the room literally removed me from the room because she said, this is not healthy for you right now because I was going to kill my own child because my child wanted to kill my child. And I was so torn over wanting to protect my child from my child who wanted to kill my child. It's the worst position to be in. But that anger was eating me alive because the person I loved was in danger from the person I loved. And I didn't know what to do with that. And all the time she was in the hospital, we had to go through this intensive therapy. And she had to go through this intensive therapy. And there was so much anger at her as she was going through this. And I was going through this. And Eric was going through this. And Erica was going through this. And we were dealing with the anger. And I was the youth pastor at the time. So dealing with that and going to work. And as soon as people found out that it, by... Um, Jamie's permission, finding out what happened with Jamie because she was in um, outpatient for a prolonged time. Then they were coming to me with their own suicide stories and dealing with their own suicide issues and counseling, much better counselor than mother at that time, much doing that. Jamie at that point 
was not ready to come back to church. She couldn't deal with facing church, facing that. My senior pastor was doing counseling with her at the home and doing counseling um, outside of the church. She wasn't talking to anybody. I was doing separate counseling outside of the church. We were all doing that. What we were not doing is doing any type of God loves you. Christ loves you. That was only between her and the senior pastor. We were very much just trying to stay in the house and not kill each other. Then the day came when Jamie decided that she was ready to come back to the church. Jamie walked in the doors of the church. She opened that first door. And like in the story of the prodigal son, people started calling her name and walking and running to her. You heard Jamie and people started running. And as they saw the first people moving, other people started running in the narthex. And they called her name and they enveloped her in hugs. And they were hugging her and they were saying, welcome back, we love you. Now her father and I were still the older brothers. We hadn't enveloped her and hugged her like that because we were still angry and we were still over here in our righteous fury, 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 but her church family, her church family welcomed her with that love, and she was literally encased with hugs and love. Not one person turned their back. They all ran to her and hugged her and loved her and welcomed her back and said how much they had missed her and how much they loved seeing her again and how much they loved her and she said it was at that moment it was at that moment that she was justified in faith it wasn't when she went through confirmation it was at that moment that she truly felt the love of Christ in her heart it was at that moment that she said yes Christ I am yours and it was at that moment that she understood what it meant to be saved through Christ's love it was when her family her Christian family came to her and said we don't care what you did we love you. She felt God's love in that moment with every kiss, every hug, every affirmation that said, we love you. We'll walk this journey with you. We will heal with you. That she couldn't turn. She couldn't turn right. She couldn't turn left. She couldn't turn a step without having somebody hold her hand, put their arms around her and hug her and love her. It was her church family that did that. They were the ones that showed her Christian love. They were the ones that showed her God's love because her biological family was still hurting. We were the older brother in that. We had to get on board that train, and eventually we did, but we had to heal. We had to be loved too. We weren't able to show God's love at that moment. The people that promised during her baptism vows, the vows you take when your children come in here, those people are the ones that showed God's love. You do the same thing. 
When those children come in here and you take those vows as a congregation to love them and to teach them and to show them Christian ways, and then when your youth come back after having hardships and tragedies and brokenness, and you love them back into this congregation, I've seen you do it. I've seen you do it in the last two years. I've seen you do it. I've seen you love them back into this congregation. I've seen you welcome them back into this congregation and throw your arms around them and love them back in the same way that our home congregation did it to Jamie. I've seen you be the arms and the body of Christ loving these youth back into the heart. I've seen you do it. Sometimes the biological family cannot be the heart of God, the arms of God, the love of God. Many times it is their, Christ, their church family, it is their Christian family that has to show the love of Christ to these broken youth and broken adults. And that is you. As the body of Christ, that is you. And I've seen you do it before, and I will see you do it again. That is the job. That is the promise that you have made. That is the vow you have taken with every baptism that you are part of. Amen.